Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. It is fantastic to be back, Paul. Thank you. Our guest this week, uh, fascinating uh, views on a range of things, including Chinese equities. The Chinese markets have been so uh, interesting uh, over the last few months, is Eleanor Cray, who's market strategist for Saxo Capital Markets here in Australia. Hi, Eleanor. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, okay, so we're, um, a lot to cover this week. We're going to talk about this trade war. Uh, it has really kicked off. Um, I think what was really interesting for us in, in the data uh, on on the site, on the website, in terms of how we've been covering this, this week was the week where I think it finally kicked home uh, our coverage of uh, the extra two hundred billion in uh, in imports um, that will be subject to tariffs. When that was announced this week, it was one of our it's been one of our biggest stories on this whole issue for a while, uh, and the rest of the coverage was big yesterday. Um, markets definitely starting to take notice. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at uh, China more generally. Uh, and we're also going to talk about the Australian market. Um, we'll obviously look at property, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into stocks as well, something that we don't look specifically uh, enough at on the show, I think. But uh, uh, Eleanor, uh, in her role here uh, for Saxo, uh, has been looking at the market and where some of the opportunities might be. So let's kick off at David uh, Trade War. Um, uh, we've had some back and forth over whether or not this is a trade war um, and uh, trade skirmishes or trade tensions that were, you, mm-hmm. you were characterizing them as a couple of weeks ago. You think we've crossed the threshold now? I think so. Uh, I've seen in a few uh, few analyst notes that they're still not willing to go and call it a war. But when you're talking about uh, basically half of China's imports coming to the United States being subject to tariffs um, and then reciprocal will our response from China coming in and potentially more to come. Uh, I suggest that now we are in a war. So it's uh, it's definitely starting to go and heat up. Uh, the markets have uh, been, as you said, paying closer attention now. And uh, I think as this progresses towards the, uh, the end of uh, August, when this deadline for a consultation on these proposed tariffs comes in, um, if there's been no resolution, and I don't think there will be a resolution, uh, we will definitely go and see probably some uh, some increased volatility across financial markets. The, the serious of, uh, seriousness of it was really brought home for me in how the US went about this, how the US Trade Representative went about this particular action. So what they could have done, as I understand it, now I'm not an expert in uh, executing uh, trade manoeuvres, um, but this is as I understand it, they could have set up a separate process for the $200 billion uh, that they announced this week, in addition to the $50 billion that was, was already announced. Uh, but they didn't. What they did was they extended the list um, that they're proposing. Now this means that the time frame for the, the application of those tariffs uh, Eleanor is hugely compressed, and they could come into action uh, in, in a matter of weeks, really. Um, so um, by September, those tariffs may be in place, uh, which means t- China is likely to retaliate with its own um, with its own tariffs on, on U.S. goods coming into China. Um, so, um, which will push up prices, or it'll change purchasing decisions for companies and for consumers. Um, what do you think are the sectors that are most exposed here when you look at this? What do you think are the most interesting sectors to look at? And uh, why? Uh, what do you think the impacts might be? It's a great question. So I think, um, as you say, we've started off sort of um, in a trade skirmish. And I mean, I think the original sort of um, list of tariffs that were going to be proposed was on around 18 products. And we're now looking at around 10,000. Um, and I mean, the, the US Trade Representative have come out and they've said they're trying not to hurt the US 
US consumer, but um, I think there's no doubt about it that the US consumer will be impacted. And I think the real worrying thing here is um, we're not going to see this backing down. And I mean, we've been fairly constant in our rhetoric on this, saying that uh, we really believe that this is something that's going to sort of continue to ramp up going into the midterm elections. Um, it's playing very well for President Trump at the moment into his voter base, and we just don't see him backing down. Trade is something Trump has been very constant on, um, even before he was elected. Um, so I think in that sense, we don't really see a backing down in these tensions anytime soon. And it's uh, really a time to sort of add some resilience to your portfolio. Um, if you do have equity exposure to be sort of dialing it back and maybe to be going uh, more defensive in sort of the consumer um, staples um, into healthcare, um, and and maybe as well sort of US treasuries, that sort of thing. And just adding resilience to the portfolio. I mean, I don't think it's time to sort of go all out off equities yet, but definitely there is um, risk sentiment um, rising in the market and we expect this volatility to continue. So one of the interesting things about this has been when the, uh, the trade representative came out with that list yesterday, we saw uh, Chinese markets opened down generally about 2%, one5 to 2%, um, you know, but ASX back you know, 0.6, Europe was down one, um, and, you know, US markets down, you know, half a percent, one percent um, in the session that followed. Um, and it's Thursday as we're recording and kind of markets kind of seem okay about it. Um, what do you think the balance is here? Because there seems to be this thing that, you know, for the longest time we've had this uh, mood and markets that almost things are kind of unshakable. You know, we had a bit of a pullback in equities, particularly U.S. equities, at the start of the year. But um, things have been, you know, grinding higher again. Um, you know, every time you know it comes back a little bit, there's there's buyers available um, and ready uh, to jump in and um, and pick it up again. So, what do you think might be the threshold that really starts a might might start a reversal uh, in sentiment, uh, like a more persistent reversal in sentiment, particularly on equities? So I think, as you say, we have seen a sort of massive complacency in equity markets at the moment. I mean, I'm really sort of since the GFC and since the European sovereign debt crisis, and we've seen um, sort of the markets are just always ready for, I guess, the Fed and for, for uh, the governments to step in and prop up asset prices. And it's led to a real complacency. Um, and it's something that's really worrying at the moment because we see, um, I think, for us, the key risk indicator is if um, Trump goes ahead with the tariffs on autos, uh, that's when it could become really ugly. Um, because it's not just tariffs increasing prices and in the US and things like that. It's actually an unraveling of global supply chains that we start to see here. And for um, every auto, around 30 35% of the components are um, imported um, components. So in that sense, if we do start to see these tariffs on um, automobiles and on other manufactured components, then it starts to sort of have a massive knock-on effect, not just in America, but in sort of global supply chains. And we just really start to undo all those years of globalization that we that have greatly benefited the world. I mean, um, last year, the sort of synchronized global recovery, um, according to the IMF, was attributed to um, record high levels of global trade. And we've seen in the past when global trade dips that actually it's very bad for the global economy. So um, let's go uh, into this uh, supply chain question because 
this is, I suppose, that where it, things are likely to get damaging for, you know, the, the, it's not just going to be U.S. consumers, but it's all of the other countries that are involved in putting together, say, a car, right? Um, you may, you know, mo- there's so many components, um, you know, and they come from so many manufacturers. Some of them are in uh, emerging markets and, you know, some of the other more sophisticated work that goes into the design and build of cars is in a, a, um, advanced markets and it all comes together and everybody basically gets work out of it and um, the consumer gets a good result. Um, but what we're staring down here is what you pointed to, which is a potential unraveling of that or some questions starting to arise about where people are going to get the parts for for their cars, et cetera. Um, so how do, how do you see that playing out? Like, how do, how do you think about um, where that might, the impacts of that might be seen beyond higher prices for cars? So I think when we sort of start to look at these supply chains unraveling, we start to look at... Um, I guess, China, where the US is targeting, and China's really just sort of an assembler of electronics now. And so then we look at countries that export to China, that's South Korea, that's Taiwan, um, that's Singapore. And um, then if we go sort of one step further back in that supply chain, actually Australia um, exports a lot to South Korea in terms of sort of um, minerals and those sort of downstream rare earth metals that are used um, in electronic parts, and they're then exported to China. So it has a real massive knock-on effect, not just in, I guess, the automobile sector that I mentioned earlier, but really um, sort of every product. And when we start to see, I guess, tariffs um, in the base case in the USA, then we just start to see... um, as the supply chain unravels and um, the value chain is disrupted, um, prices in the US will increase. And um, this is coming at a time when the Federal Reserve are hiking interest rates. Um, And it's going to be very difficult, I guess, for the Fed to sort of distinguish um, whether inflation is coming from the tariffs or whether it's actually underlying sort of structural changes in inflation. Yeah, and and because of the, you know, the tightness of the labor market, basically inflation has finally found something. (laughs) We saw some inflation data. I think CPI is, it's Thursday, CPI is out tonight, is it? It is out tonight. We saw Um, PPI last night. Yeah, Yeah. and and that was a little bit... Again, uh, yeah, it was so- hotter. Like, uh, you've seen, uh, obviously, there's been some strength in, uh, in raw commodity prices uh, recently that uh, there's contributed to that. But uh, it was at a multi-year high, the, uh, the year-on-year rate. So, And it did go in uh, and beat the street estimates. So there is definitely signs that uh, upstream price pressures are starting to go and build. Now, you throw it on top of that, uh, I know, the threat of tariffs being applied to you know, 10% tariffs on 200 uh, billion US worth of imports from China. Uh, there's definitely grounds to go and say that, no, the risks in the interim are definitely to the upside and obviously that feeds through to if it goes transfers down to downstream price pressures what the consumer pays which it looks like it probably will uh that's going to definitely go and boost inflation and then uh, create some sort of uh, no headache as to go and, as uh, eleanor said figure out exactly if this has been driven by the strength in the u.s economy or whether it's just been purely driven by what's going on with this, uh, this trade tiff yeah uh i know complacency market complacency dave has been a particular bugbear of yours for um uh, for some time um and uh, you know i've genuinely been surprised as well too this week where you know you've finally got the world's two largest economies locked in what seems to be a very damaging uh, and economic, economically destructive um, uh, exchange, you know, policy battle, um, which is, you know, has the potential to hurt jobs, hurt job creation, uh, and push up consumer prices, um, squeeze margins for companies, uh, particularly if you're an importer of parts from China in the US, uh, which is 
where a huge amount of the uh, the tariffs are targeted. So things like boilers and all the parts that go into that go into making more sophisticated machinery that the United States makes, um, that manufacturers in the in the United States make. Um, though the prices for those are come up, it's going to squeeze um, margins for for those for those American companies, um, and you know that brings a question for them about you know their ability to keep creating jobs and return you know decent profits and all of that kind of stuff. So it is going to get very um, it is going to get very interesting. Um, what do you think um, are you touched on this a little bit earlier, Eleanor? But implications for Australia, um, you know, so. Say you get a bit of a weakening. Let's you, you, the example you used was a weakening of uh, activity in Korea, which is a big export market for us in terms of raw materials and other things. Um, so maybe you can elaborate on that. What what are the other imp- potential implications of this for for Australia here for the domestic economy? Yeah, of course. So I think for Australia, I mean, there's no doubt about it. If we were to sort of end up with, um, I guess, the really awful scenario of um, a an all-out trade war, um, high levels of tariffs and even sort of trade walls, the the situation would be pretty dire, the outcome for Australia. I mean, um, with China as our major major trading partner, any slowdown in growth in China will negatively affect Australia Um, and as well sort of South Korea, as we mentioned earlier. But I think um, as it stands at the moment, there are possibly some areas where Australia could as well benefit, I guess, from the tariffs. Um, It's sort of Hard to quantify the, the macro effects overall, though, as tariffs really, it's, it's, not just, it's not just a tariff. It has all those other sort of added components that we, we spoke about earlier. Um, but on, on base, uh, the tariffs that we've seen introduced at the moment, we could possibly see sort of some benefits for Australian exporters of um, beef and other agricultural products um, as they become more competitive um, relative to US products in China. So uh, trade war probably isn't going to stop a Chinese guy eating his steak, um, but a higher price of a, of a US beef will stop him choosing US beef over Australian beef. So in that sense, we could see some bright spots in the Australian economy. Um, I just want to, I made a note of some of the uh, amazing things that are listed in that in the goods that are... I've got RSI scrolling down with my mouse going through that list. <laughs> it was so damn long. Yeah, n- 95 pages in about 10-point 10, 10 font. Um, but right at the very end of the list. And so you've got all your, you know, boilers and, you know, machine parts and... Um, there's a lot of fresh goods uh, on it, so uh, human stag- human hair, yeah, human hair. Yeah, well, yeah, right. Um, uh, I wonder how the the human. Oh, well, actually, human hair is actually a pretty big market, isn't hair it? Hair extensions. Um, yeah, hair extensions and wigs too, and yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, gross. Okay, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they wash it. <laughs> At least I hope they do. Um, down the end of the list. Uh, so watch out if you're a, an art collector in in the United States, because there's um, or or a um, a philatelist, because postage and revenue stamps, um, stamp postmarks, first aid covers, postal stationery, and the like, used or unused, um, that is going to have a ten percent uh, proposed ten percent tariff. Um, collections and collectors pieces of zoological, botanical, mineralogical anatomical, historical, and archaeological interest, 10%. Um, and my favorite, antiques of an age exceeding 100 years. Um, you know, in California, I imagine there are some, uh, you know, uh, Chinese uh, uh, antique uh, fans um, uh, in, uh, in 
San Francisco and, and New York. Um, their prices might. Are you be saying going Middle up. America doesn't like those things as well? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think he's uh, trying to hit his base. Um, trying to, you know, being careful to avoid the base there. Uh, one really interesting observation uh, we've seen um, uh, is that some of the retaliatory tariffs from China, uh, particularly in terms of soybeans, uh, target farmers and other parts of the Midwest, like parts of. Um, the uh, United States that strong, where um, Trump has very, very strong support. Uh, and you mentioned as well, Eleanor, um, the political dynamics in this cannot be underestimated, particularly with Trump heading into the midterms. Um, well, Republicans heading into the midterms and this question of, you know, is, it is a really big question, big test for, um, the Trump, for Trump's support base um, and his own standing with the public. Uh, so... We'll see, you know, uh, with th that campaign essentially will be conducted with all of this happening uh, and Trump being the, the, the strong man on trade, hey? Yeah, so I think um, for Trump, it's sort of all about getting the US a better deal. And we've heard this um, for the past few months. Uh, that's what he's sort of spoken about con constantly. And we're seeing that um, with the sort of recent developments um, with the NATO summit that's going on at the moment. Um, it's, it's a constant rhetoric that sort of the US allies are not doing enough for America and um, America needs a better deal and it's unfair on the American taxpayers. Uh, so that's sort of one of the main reasons why we don't see this sort of backing off anytime soon. And I think you made a really interesting point there that I guess the Chinese retaliation is um, a direct attack on Trump's voter base. Um, as, as yet, it hasn't actually seemed to work. So I think now um, the next step is to sort of wait and see um, whether the sort of US corporates come out and put pressure on Trump and whether that sort of um, uh, allows him to back down a little bit or back off these this last 200 billion round of tariffs. Um, doubtful as to whether that will work because I think there's a lot of sort of political will coming in here and I don't think that he's going to sort of listen in, in that case. Um, so then we get to sort of what can China do? And I mean, China can't actually match dollar for dollar if, if they tariff all um, yeah, Chinese that. imports. So yeah. in that sense, then do they start sort of um, hitting at US multinationals that are based out of China and have business in China, sort of reg regulations, um, licensing restrictions, health inspections, holding goods up at ports, all those sort of things. Um, and we've seen this before because so many American companies have difficulty anyway operating in China. JP Morgan famously, um, you know, had to pull out of its, you know, wind back its plans um, for setting up there. And the CEO, Jamie Dimon, has talked about how he'd love to be in, in business there, but they just can't get the setup. So it just shows you that there are already significant hurdles and Beijing is capable of putting them in place for U.S. companies that are looking to tap those enormous markets and growing, particularly the middle class there. Um, so, you know, Google has uh, difficulty, um, you know, with, um, you know, you can't access it, um, <laughs> but they have difficulty operating there as well, you know, and so and the list goes on. David, um, how do you see this? Because I know you follow the dynamics of um, Trump's uh, uh, politics uh, uh, with um, some interest. 
A little bit of interest. I'm generally not a very political person, but uh, obviously you've got to be political in this uh, this job and uh, and take note what's going on. I, I just found a, there was a remark that was uh, released a hot headline on Reuters yesterday from the State Administration of Foreign Exchange uh, in China. So it's a body of the uh, the PBOC, and uh, it released a statement saying uh, that Chinese corporates should be uh, you know looking to hedge or do things on those lines. And I found that very, very strange is kind of remark, kind of almost implying that um, there may be a financial response uh, if they can't go, obviously they can't match dollar for dollar the, uh, the trade side of things. Um, there's other mechanisms that potentially they could go and use. I know a lot of people think that they won't uh, use things like treasuries, the UN to go and, uh, and target, uh, target, you know, problems uh, with the US is creating. So to me, that's definitely something that is worth watching because you now we've seen already uh, in the last uh, last couple of months that the UN has been absolutely smoked. Um, Chinese stocks have been smoked. Um, so they're still starting to feel it. So I'm not sure how much longer that, uh, that China will be willing to, uh, to go and let this go because at the moment, Trump is winning. Uh, you look at what's going on. U.S. stock market, yes, it's uh, it's off its highs from early in the year, but it's still not uh, anywhere near to the same scale as what's happened in China. Um, you look at things like, you know, uh, this week Trump uh, had an issue with Pfizer saying that the drug prices were too high. Lo and behold, they went and cut prices. Um, his uh, disapproval rating is uh, is definitely uh, you know, starting to go and improve. Um, so there's all these signs that what he's doing and the mechanisms he's doing at the moment are working. So unless China can go and negotiate a deal – they've got to probably look to other mechanisms to go in and make this uncomfortable for him. And that's where I think the real dramas might go and set in. You, you mentioned the uh, currency there. And um, obviously, you know, China retains, um, the PBOC retains a lot of control, a uh, very firm hand on, on the strength of the, the yuan. Now, um, the, a hid the hidden hand, it's called. The hidden hand, yeah. So, um, so when the, this recent weakening that we've seen, and, and particularly uh, on Wednesday with Wednesday's annou announcement, it got really tonked. Um, so, you know, that's a signal that um, the central bank isn't in there trying to support the currency, and they're going to let it weaken a little bit. Um, it's down a long way. Uh, it's fallen a long way against the U.S. dollar this year. Um, so it, and it makes for a really interesting question about how um, Beijing manages policy um, at a general level. And um, Eleanor, I know one thing that you've called out uh, recently uh, is something that's applying to you know China's own um, uh, uh, domestic picture and its own control, you know, control of the economy there, is this RRR cut um, that we had a few months ago and how this is effectively a pretty strong stimulus. I think it was 100 basis points, was it? 50 basis 50, points. 50 basis points, yep. Um, which It'll is, soon be 100. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, we are expecting, um, that's our forecast, at least one more triple R cut by the end of the year. Right, right. So let's talk about the effect of that and um, how that works as uh, stimulus. Yeah, of course. So um, the... Triple R ratio, it really puts a cap on the amount that the banks can lend into the economy, essentially. Um, so cutting by 50 basis points, that releases um, extra liquidity into the economy um, that the banks can then use to sort of lend out and, and to fuel um, credit growth within the Chinese economy. So it's, it's not um, an outright monetary easing, but it's definitely the sort of PBOCs switching their stance more towards um, growth. And I think um, over sort of recent years, we've seen this uh, really harsh official rhetoric on deleveraging. And um, it's, it's 
coming at quite a timely moment that I guess we've sort of seen data starting to cool off maybe somewhat in China. And I think that they are preempting some sort of growth slowdown possibly from this trade scenario uh, playing out. And it's at that point now that we're seeing the PBOC switch their stance, become more accommodative and um, really step in to support growth in China. Um, so the recent triple R cut that would have unleashed around 500 billion yuan of liquidity onto the state banks balance sheets and I think around 200 billion onto sort of the smaller postal banks which is really supporting sort of the smaller um, private corporates and small businesses that would be really hurt I guess from from a trade war and also have been really marginalized from the deleveraging campaign. So despite the fact that Chinese uh, stocks and you know the overall um, indices the big ones and particularly like the Shanghai composite um, getting beaten up this year. Um, You've had a more uh, optimistic take on the outlook. (laughs) Yeah, so I think um, definitely it hasn't been purely sort of the trade war scenario that's been behind the Chinese equity sell-off. I think we have really seen sort of the domestic reform issues come to a head in China this year. Um, We've really seen liquidity dry up. um, And that's fed into sort of Um, the equity market and the sentiment being a lot more negative than it was last year, say. Um, So it's definitely not just the trade tensions. There are underlying domestic issues as well. Um, But I think what's really positive is that actually these financial reforms will in the long run um, support the economy. Um, We are seeing Beijing uh, open up their financial markets. They are becoming more liberal and They really do want to sort of start to encourage foreign investment now. Uh, I think they know that sort of a lot of um, the US's growth and innovation actually comes from having deep and liquid capital markets. And it's something that China doesn't have. And I think in that sense, we are seeing them uh, move towards this. Uh, The risk at the moment for me is that actually these trade tensions uh, steer them off the path of deleveraging and um, their domestic reforms and, and sort of hold that up because actually in the long term, that's very beneficial for China. David, you're a long-term China watcher too. Um, What's your take on what the dynamics are just for them domestically at the moment? I agree that the the sell-off we're seeing in Chinese stocks is not about the trade war. It's uh, that's that's been a more recent development. But uh, if you looked at the uh, look at the Shanghai Composite chart, the CSI 300, all the major like Chinese indices, they all topped for this year. In the same week and just before all the other markets became uh, know, crazy after the, uh, the US uh, wage data report, I think, came out for January. Uh, and that, that led to that, uh, that big poc- uh, pocket of volatility that we saw in, uh, in offshore markets. Um, I'm, it's difficult to say. I, I'm, I look at uh, commodity markets closely, obviously, uh, iron ore and rebar and coke and coal and coke and all those kind of things. And the one thing I found interesting is recently – is that they've been shuttering a lot of excess uh, capacity and things on those lines uh, in those sectors to go and help uh, improve profitability, uh, to go and support prices and the like. Um, And that's worked. uh, But recently we've seen prices really start to ramp up, particularly for steel and things on those lines. And whilst I can see why the markets are getting excited about what's going on with uh, the shuttering of these these temporary shutting uh, shutdowns that have been seen supporting prices. I'm starting to go and wonder too whether they may actually start moving back into supporting their uh, their domestic economy through what they've done so often in the past, which is through property investment, infrastructure investment. Um, so that's something that I'm definitely keeping a close eye on because. If they are concerned about what's going on, the external environment is deteriorating as it is at the moment. 
I can't see many other options for them until, unless they uh, go back to what they've done best, and that's, you know, building stuff. So, Eleanor, one of the big, this is one of the big stories at the moment is the, the, the pullback in, in emerging markets, right? So this uh, last year, let's say 2017, EM was looking really good um, and kind of fairly uniformly good. But now there's all sorts of patchiness and problems. So um, uh, uh, Turkey in all sorts of trouble, Argentina, you know, so EM, that, that story has turned around very significantly. And also we've had, you know, um, the, the 800 pound gorilla in a EM being China, um, uh, share market being down pretty significantly, getting clobbered this year. Um, so I understand that you've got a view that there may be a time, given the sort of more stimulatory uh, uh, policy that we're sort of looking towards and, and the way they're managing um, uh, the markets there, um, you know, as you say, you know, making sure that they've got the, the levels of capital that they need. Um, that this, you know, some Chinese companies uh, might be uh, a good uh, opportunity uh, for investors to buy. Maybe you can talk us through that a, a little bit. Yeah, of course. So um, we see, I guess, some sort of long-term demographic trends in China um, under underpinning, I guess, the sort of domestic consumer demand side of the economy that will really supersede, I guess, any business cycle and sort of any trade war concerns. Um, it's definitely a long-term theme. Uh, it's not something that I would sort of say, go and buy Chinese equities today and uh, sort of in 12 months' time you'll have doubled your money. No, nothing like that. It's um, really... I guess, something that's long-term you want to be thinking about. So essentially for us, we're looking at sort of a lot of data around, I guess, the Chinese middle class and how that's growing, and as well the sort of upper end of that middle class. And I think um, what's really interesting is that we're seeing um, a lot of people, when they think about Asian demographics, is they they can be quite negative about it. And they say, oh, sort of the population in China is aging. Um, why would I want to buy Chinese stocks now? Um, but actually, we don't see that. We see that sort of a Chinese family, so number one, China have a very high female labor participation rate. Um, number two, we've had the one-child policy. So a lot of families only have one child. So then when you think about sort of the average income for, for a Chinese family, uh, it's a lot higher than it would be, say, for an Indian family or a Vietnamese family. Um, so in that sense, they have um, a far greater proportion of their wage to spend on discretionary consumer spending. Um, and then when we do look at sort of the ageing population scenario, yes, it's a factor. But I think that's really something that only comes into play in sort of developed economies where we see the government stepping in and... Um, uh, funding pensions and things like that. So there's a propensity not to save um, for the end of your life or for your retirement. Whereas um, in Asian countries, they're actually not reliant on sort of a pension from the government. I mean, a Chinese family, they don't think, oh, Beijing's going to support me when I retire. No, they actually save. Um, and I mean, there isn't a lot of data on this, but we've looked at sort of data in Japan. And actually, the average Japanese family has around um, 10 years of sort of savings for for their retirement. Um, 
So in that sense, we would, we would expect that to play out in China. So those sort of long-term demographic trends will really feed into sort of an increasing demand for sort of consumer-centric industries. Um, and as well, we've been looking at data as to sort of what discretionary products um, Chinese consumers like to spend their money on, and I guess what quality of product they prefer. And it's actually really interesting that around sort of 80% of um, those surveyed said they rather pay more for a higher quality product um, than less for a lower quality product. So I think um, then as well, when we think about how huge the middle class in China will be, uh, I think data shows us it's going to be around sort of 70% of the economy uh, by 2030. So that's really massive. Um, so we're looking at a lot of stocks that would benefit from that trend and definitely from the sort of consumption upgrade side of things. So riding that premium upgrade theme, um, liquor, hotels, um, sports clothing, running shoes, healthcare. These are all things that people start to spend their money on as they sort of become more wealthy. And I think that's what we're seeing in China is it's moving from this sort of emerging market economy, um, very export led. And we're now sort of seeing a sort of consumer driven economy. Uh, domestic consumption is now driving GDP a lot more than exports are. And that's where we really see the opportunity in China. So really interesting uh, picture. Dave, um, sorry, you had a question? Uh, no, just an anecdotal thing. I, if you want to go and see like the, uh, that expressed in real life scenarios, have a look at uh, the airport. You can spot Chinese tourists a mile off, at least in my opinion, because uh, they always have Rimor uh, suitcases. Now, anyone who's gone and, and had a look at uh, the stores, Rimor suitcases cost you an arm and a leg. <laughs> Um, and there's just seemed to be like, I think the entire Chinese populace seems to be supplied now with suitcases. So it just gives you anecdotal evidence of like, no, they will go and pay up for something, which essentially is the same thing. But the high quality premium brand is something that they definitely are no favor. Yeah. And to your point, Eleanor, on the size of it, I, I think I remember one uh, a number, which is, and this is just going from memory, but I think by 2050, the Chinese middle class will be the size of the current population of the United States. Um, which is just uh, mind-blowing uh, when, when, you, when you think about it um, that way and just the, the opportunities that there are for all sorts of different um, companies, firms, etc. Now, question for you. Um, Australian investors thinking about uh, Chinese stocks, all sorts of restrictions on foreign purchases, all of that kind of thing. So what are the instruments that uh, Australian investors at the moment can use to get um, exposure to those um, to, to those to all of that potential upside that you're talking about. Yeah, of course. So now with um, uh, the Hong Kong Stock Connect, um, Australian investors can actually purchase um, Chinese A shares listed on the Shenzhen and Shanghai exchanges directly. Um, you would just need to find a broker that uh, is able to provide the Hong Kong Stock Connect exchange access. So, so there's that, but then there's also like a lot of, uh, I think, um, Australian investors also be looking at sort of emerging market ETFs, all of that kind of thing. Um, wh what do you think about those? What, what, what's your take on those instruments? Uh, yeah, I guess so that's sort of the question whether you go for the individual company or whether you just sort of buy the blob in an index ETF, I guess. Um, for me, when it comes to sort of thinking about those long-term demographic trends, I would definitely much rather select individual companies and uh, be able to sort of go through them, uh, visibility of earnings, um, corporate governance, uh, that sort of thing, rather than, I guess, just buying 
an entire ETF. And I think as well, sort of when when you're purchasing the ETF, you, you're gaining exposure to a, a lot of industries. I mean, I guess you'd be gaining exposure to the financials and other sectors that maybe aren't set to perform so well over the coming years. So I think in that sense, uh, being a, an active stock picker in today's environment is actually really important. I don't think um, passive investing is really serving too many people that well this year. Certainly uh, EM uh, ETFs over the last uh, few months would have been pretty scary. Uh, well, you throw in the combination of <laughs> soaring crude prices, uh, the QT being undertaken by the Fed, a far stronger US dollar, uh, it was always going to be a, a tough runner after a stellar 2017. So those uh, those stocks and uh, those markets in particular, um, presuming that the, uh, the current trends are maintained, and I'm not going to have, have a view on that whether or not, but uh, certainly if that continues, then uh, I think it could be a lot worse, the pain level that, uh, that some investors may have unless they're willing to go in and bail out. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Okay, uh, let's um, bring it home. We'll talk about the football a little bit later, um, uh, but um, let's bring it home here to Australia and the domestic picture. Um, Eleanor, uh, you the, one of the big themes. Let's start with this. Start tangentially to where we um, to where we left off with some of the uh, more risk averse mood that's been in markets uh, more recently. Been talked so the Australian, uh, the ASX has been rallying. Uh, it's um, added a couple of hundred points in the last few weeks, pulled back a little bit this week again. But um, there's this talk about it being a, a bit of a safe haven play when all of this other, uh, uh, you know, this noise is going on uh, in, in other in other markets around the world. Um, how has that played out for for various companies, and, and what's the rationale behind uh, the safe haven uh, thinking as you know for Australian stocks? Yeah, it's actually been really interesting to sort of witness the the rally over the last month or so, I guess. So I think um, there's been a few key drivers behind it. Um, firstly, I think, as we've just discussed, we've seen a lot of volatility in um, sort of APAC markets and emerging markets. So a lot of sort of um, fund managers have maybe taken volatility out of their portfolio and have entered the Australian market now. I think um, we've also seen our currency has come off a little bit. So a lot of that perceived currency risk that would have been there when when sort of, I guess, choosing between maybe um, China or Australia previously last year has come off a bit as well. So I think a lot of that currency risk has come off as well. Um, and I think what's really interesting is that, I guess, the majority of the ASX constituents um, when we look at the top 10 constituents, they don't really have exposure to China. So we've sort of got the, the banks um, and then we've got BHP and Rio. And I guess they do have exposure to China, but they've been really propped up by sort of long run commodity prices at the moment. So in that sense, the ASX has been seen as a safe haven in Asia. Right. So which, uh, which makes it all, um, all very interesting because, you know, the banks, um, as you say, um, have found some buyers. Um, maybe it's there's a sense that um, a lot of what the consequences of the Royal Commission um, so far are, are kind of um, are clear. Um, so, um, you know, we, we, they're going to be selling off their wealth arms. They're probably going to be smaller, more dedicated to specific banking services rather than wealth, all that kind of stuff. Um, 
And uh, the Royal Commission and the consistent stream of headlines that we saw, particularly around the major banks, has kind of died off a little bit. So maybe there's a bit of confidence back in the banks and then add in um, this issue of the, the, the safe haven buy um, that we've seen. And um, sure, property market slowdown. We're going to talk about um, the property in a second. But um, that is starting to look um, like the it's kind of as bad as it's going to get. Um, that's at least in the data that we can see. Um, it's, you know, house, house prices may have further to fall, um, but we had the APRA chairman at this week saying, you know, um, that he's pretty happy with what the banks have done in terms of lending standards uh, and that there's not, importantly, there's not more to come. So there's not another uh, regulatory uh, impost uh, coming on the banks there in terms of, you know, rules around um, how they um, how they lend and um, and the volume of lending growth, etc. Uh, so we've we've had um, that really interesting sort of development. Now, how do you see that the, the outlook for the domestic economy and are there individual stock sectors that you're looking at with interest at the moment? So I think the outlook for the domestic economy is sort of relatively good at the moment. Um, it's okay. It's not great, I guess. And I think that's illustrated in the fact that we've had the RBA on sort of record low hold of the cash rate. Um, but there definitely are sectors that have been, I guess, picking up recently. Um, we really like the consumer discretionary sector at the moment as well. We're seeing a lot of opportunities in healthcare. Um, we really like technology at the moment as well. I think um, really because the technology sector has um, a very low leverage ratio. So in that sense, um, largely protected from sort of interest rate increases, um, which we are sort of starting to see go on elsewhere in the world. Um, so in that sense, not, I guess, subject to those sort of funding pressures as much. Um, as well, we see that the technology sector has a very high return on invested capital. Um, and as well, it's really a sector that has managed to deliver year-on-year -year growth in earnings. So for us, that's pretty remarkable, and it's it's a sector we're very interested in. The technology sector is, I think, one of the really bright stories, uh, and kind of it's uh, not as celebrated as as perhaps it should be. For me, you know, when you look back five years ago, you know, we had almost no, or we had a terrible uh, private equity venture capital, in particular, uh, uh, landscape. Um, there were really terrible terms that companies were, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting investors on board with. Um, but all of that has matured very, very quickly, thanks to the leadership of, I think, you know, a few funds, um, the likes of SquarePeg, um, you know, Adventure Capital, um, and uh, just thinking of the others, um, you know, Mike Cannon-Brooks with Grok Ventures. Um, and Airtree Ventures as well, you know, and they have put together hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in venture money um, to pile into a whole load of companies which have been able to grow really quickly. Yes, lots of them have gone bust and failed and disappeared, um, but we now have, like, for example, a, a pretty recognizably um, a clear uh, fintech sector. You know, we're a whole stack of companies. You know, we've got Afterpay. Um, you the, know, the, problem, the problem we have, though, is that I've got no doubt that innovation is there and I'm so happy to see it, but we just don't have the, the capital pools available to go and keep these companies and get them to list here. They all go offshore and that's to me the biggest grievance that we've never been able to go and attract and retain those the best and brightest. So it's something that, you know, I, I completely agree with you. I think that it's fantastic that you know, there's, there's been a push to go and become more innovative and get these companies uh, you know, out there and you know, 
growing revenues and the like. But the problem is that so many of them then go offshore and then we never see them again. The revenues go. Well, true. And some of the jobs will go too. Yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Yeah. And it is like it's part of it. A big part of it is that, you know, getting that critical mass around, you know, a, a pool of labor that's available, you know, for companies to be confident coming in that they can get the project managers, they can get the architects, mm. they can get um, the database engineers, etc. Um, at a reasonable rate. Yeah. Uh, we just, we just we're, don't have we're a small, I know, like, for 25 million odd people, soon, soon enough will be 25 odd million people. We just don't have enough you know, scale to go and really like go and keep it, which is something which unfortunately is just going to be there for a while. But uh, it would be fantastic to go and have a bigger tech sector because to me, from a broader index perspective, it's the one missing cog that we've lacked uh, over the last uh, 10, 15, 20 years where you've seen all the growth in, uh, sorry, majority of the growth in, offshore markets have come from tech companies and we've just had this tiny little sector which hasn't really gone much bigger than what it was you know years ago uh, and until that changes i think it's going to be hamstrung i you know banks materials uh consumer uh, staples you look at those combined it's like you know well over 60 percent of our index so uh that's something that we need as a, as a nation to go and address to go and you know, move forward i think and to go and see better returns on the asx um certainly uh, going to be interesting i can't uh uh let uh, today go we do need to wrap up but i can't let today go without looking quickly at the property market uh dave um maybe a little bit of turn in the data at the uh, lately ah uh, there's Few few bits and bobs that have uh, they've been slightly positive. We saw the uh, Lenny Finance figures came out and they uh, they surprised. Uh, I know everyone was thinking, well, properties falling, you know, uh, surely demand will be coming off. And the turnover is fairly low at the moment as well, so they'll be leading to like a decline in both volumes and also you no know, flow of new uh, new loans. It didn't happen uh, back in May, but uh, to say that uh, it's we're still probably uh, in a bit of a funk, and I can't really see that changing anytime soon. But uh, we discussed it uh, previously, you know. With the, uh, with the housing market, it doesn't look like it's going to be, a, at this point at least, uh, I know something cataclysmic that's going to go and, and reap the market. Uh, we're seeing lending standards, uh, according to the, uh, the regulator, as basically being done in terms of their tightening. I think that explains why the Australian banks are rallying today, or at least they were when we came into the podcast. So to me, it's, uh, it's just orderly. It's after a very, very strong period of growth and, and whatnot. But uh, to say that I uh, know that the market's about to go and turn and next up leg in, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne started, I think it's probably you know, a, stretch yeah, early. To, a yeah. stretch too far. I, I, I should, I should uh, perhaps clarify that. Like the, maybe the data's not turning, but it's certainly not. The, the, the bad it's not, news it's is not getting worse. It's not yeah. getting worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So clearance rate's still down around you know, sub 50% in, in Sydney. Uh, Eleanor, what's, what's your take on this? Everybody, uh, you know, has a view on where the property market's at. What's yours? Um, yes, yeah, so I think yesterday's data kind of, re it, well, it reassured me that we're maybe not going to have a hard landing for the property market, like I guess some sort of doom and gloom mongers were touting um, in recent weeks. But I think we are seeing a softening in house prices. I mean, we've seen that in Sydney. They've come off around 5% um, and Melbourne as well. Um and I think as well, the sort of tightening in credit standards um, is where we're seeing a lot of that softening in house prices coming from. Um, I do think that we are underpinned, I guess, by by the demand um, coming from population growth, though. So I think in that sense, it's very hard to predict a hard landing for the property market in, in Sydney and Melbourne, and I think definitely Brisbane with a lot of interstate migration. Um, it, would, it would be uh, foolish to go and say that maybe we're going to have a hard landing. Do you have a view on rates, um, on, you know, when the next move will be from the RBA? 
um, you know, is it going to be 2024? I don't know. But uh, <laughs> yeah. um, what, what do you think? So I think um, we definitely won't be seeing a rate hike from the RBA until late 2019, maybe early 2020. Um, at this stage, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of the cut. Um, I mean, we've seen the RBA become a little bit more dovish recently. Um, they've left out a few um, of those key wordings in, in their statement that the next move will be up. I think a lot of that, though, is dependent, I guess, on how... Um, the sort of macro environment globally plays out in terms of the US and in terms of China. Um, so I, on, based on domestic data alone, I wouldn't be pricing in a rate cut at this stage. I think um, we need to sort of wait and see how, how the Chinese um, growth outlook plays out and how the sort of trade tension outlook plays out and how that's going to possibly impact Australia. But Definitely in terms of when it comes to the next rate hike, I think we need to see at least two or three readings of strong wage growth up around two and a half percent, three percent before the RBA will consider hiking rates. Um, I mean, the last CPI inflation reading was 1.9 percent. It's still below their target range. So I think we're definitely not going to see the RBA hiking anytime soon. It's been a fascinating chat. Uh, we're going to wrap up, but very briefly, um, you're from England. <laughs> I am. Yeah, I'm sorry, not because you're English, but because uh, because, <laughs> because <laughs> rub salt in my wounds. Yeah, oh, that was, that was, yeah oh, I'm heartbroken. Um, I, I was thinking during the week. I've got you know, uh, obviously colleagues, business insider over in London, you know, friends, you know, old friends, and I've got one of my best friends is actually in London at the moment, and I was talking to him during the week, and I was just saying how jealous I was that you know, the sun's been out. Um, you know, everybody's been on the streets doing it's coming home and it's just been so big um, and it was so exciting there for a while. And England played very well against Croatia, but, uh, um, you know, they got pipped. Uh, so um, sorry to see that. Uh, but it was, wasn't it, uh, wasn't it a great thrill to see them, you know, the build up and all the excitement around the. I team. think so. And I think when you just sort of see how, I guess, the domestic population rallied together, and I guess, like you just said, sort of out in the streets in the sun, um, football's coming home. I think we did bring football home. We might not have got to the final. Maybe we didn't win the World Cup, but we did pretty well. I tell you one thing they didn't bring home was the beer. Have you seen those videos of the uh, of everybody the, the celebrations in bars? And this thing has caught on where everybody has their beer in a plastic cup and they all just go up in the air um, all at the same time if England scores. Just Sounds like they've been borrowing their, uh, their behaviour from Australian fans. <laughs> <laughs> anything. That's, that's what, that sounds like us at the cricket. Yeah, uh, It's been fantastic. And a real pity, um, I think, you know, well, particularly for Australia, you know, France, Croatia, just a little bit of a less... Um, hey, there's a big Croatian community out there. I went, yeah, I went and checked the, uh, the the census data to go and see what it was. So oh, really? The, yeah, I think it was, uh, there's about 40-odd thousand uh, Australians, a little bit over, uh, who were born in Croatia, so obviously a lot more people. So it's going to be a big community, not obviously, obviously as big as what the uh, the English community is, but best of luck to them. They, um, they played really well. Um, I thought the um, I thought the game, and the, particularly the sealer, was, uh, was a great goal and uh, just classical through ball, left foot, bang, back of the net. So... Um, who knows? They uh, they can go and topple the, uh, the the English. I think that France. You know, everyone's going to be like rallying behind them in terms of like, oh no, they're the big behemoth and you know, Mbappe is you no know, the superstar and everything else. But we're seeing this has been quite a tournament of upsets. Who would have thought that in the end would have a, a France uh, Croatia final? So. Best of luck to our both teams. And uh, in my, my opinion, the underdog, uh, you know, I will be backing them. So, yeah, go Croatia. 
Uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, we'll probably talk about it next week when our guest next week is uh, Rob Rennie, who's global strategist at Westpac and he, who has his hands on some amazing data uh, on the supply chains um, and uh, all of these other components of uh, the Chinese economy and other parts of, and, um, and industries in other parts of the world. Um, that might be affected by these tariffs, and it's going to be a great chat. This week, our guest has been Eleanor Cray, uh, market strategist at Saxo Capital Markets here in Australia. Eleanor, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a great chat. Thank you very much for having me. Dave, uh, been another good show? It has been. After a very long week, I'm looking forward to uh, not being able to have a beer this, uh, this weekend. You've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I've been here with David Scott and Eleanor Cray. Um, you can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at BIAUS, and we're all on Twitter individually too. Uh, the show has been produced by Rick Salter, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>